This is a podcast from the School of English, Drama, Film and Creative Writing at University College Dublin. In this episode, a recording from a symposium dedicated to the work of the writer Elish Nigwivna, who taught creative writing in UCD for many years. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 25th of January 2018 and was convened by Professor Margaret Kelleher and myself, Professor Anne Fogarty, on behalf of the School of English, Drama, Film and Creative Writing. This podcast features a recording of Panel 2, Reading the short stories of Elish Nigwivna. The panel featured selected readings and responses by Mary Morrissey, Philomena Byrne, Professor Frank McGuinness, Henrietta McCurvey and Lorcan Byrne. The panel was introduced by Dr Paul Perry from University College Dublin. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Paul Perry. Uh, delighted to introduce you to this part of our celebration and uh, tribute to Eilish Nguivna. Um I had the pleasure of working with Eilish for eight years and um, I have very fond memories of those, of those years. Um, she was an inspiring colleague, an inspiring teacher, and um, she'll be missed very much. Uh, so this session is going to be on reading the short stories of Eilish Nguivna. And our panel this afternoon will be made up of Mary Morrissey, Frank McGuinness, uh, Philomena Carney-Byrne, Henrietta McCurvey and Lorcan Byrne, a combination of, of colleagues, of students and of admirers of Eilish's work. Um, and they will both discuss her work and read from her work. Uh, and we have five contributors, so I think we're going to get started. Uh, get going straight away and we might have a little bit of time for discussion. We'll see how time goes. I'll be looking closely to Anne Fogarty for direction. The closer we get to, um, yeah, the closer we get to half five. Okay. So first off, we're going to have Mary Morrissey. Um, we're delighted to have Mary here. She's the author of three novels, Mother of Pearl, The Pretender and The Rising of Bella Casey. She's also the author of two collections of stories, A Lazy Eye, and most recently, Prosperity Drive. Mother of Pearl, her first novel, was shortlisted for the Whitbread Award, which is now the Costa, and The Pretender and The Rising of Bella Casey have both been nominated for the Dublin Impact International Literary Award. Her short fiction has been anthologised widely and won her a Hennessy Award in 1984, and in 1995, she was awarded the prestigious U.S. Lannan Foundation Award. She is Associate Director of the Creative Writing Programme at the University of College Cork, and she's also a member of ASTONA. Please put your hands together for Mary Morrison. Hi there. Can I say, first of all, how delighted I am to be invited to contribute to this great day. Um, I'll raise a glass to Eilish. I'm going to kind of gallop through um, two stories and a third from the selected. Um, and I, I, I'm just going to call this Lenny's Writing Life. Um, so these three stories, well, two certainly uh, feature a named character, the same character, Lenny. 
who might be seen as a stand-in for the author. And the, the three stories I'm going to talk about, The Flowering, uh, The Banana Boat, and uh, Illumination, sort of revisit Lenny or versions of Lenny and represent, for me anyway, apart from their qualities as accomplished narratives in their own right, a kind of subterranean history, um, kind of metafictional almost testimony when you look at them all together, to the anxieties of authorship, and in particular, I think, female authorship. So the, the flowering is from the 1991 collection. Just another thing about these stories, they're written about a decade apart. So they represent kind of three stages of Eilish Nigrivna. The flowering is from the 1991 collection, Eating Women is Not Recommended. It's written mostly in the present continuous, in close third, and it features Lenny, a young woman and fiction writer, we suspect, although that identity is very effaced in the text. The story starts with Lenny having a dream, an habitual dream, where she longs for what she calls a true discovery. Uh, Quote, the promise, or rather the hope of, solutions glows like a lantern in the bottle green, the black cave of her mind, where Plato's shadows sometimes hover but more often than not, do not make an appearance at all, end quote. The non-appearance of even notional shadows reveals, I think, Lenny's deep-seated anxiety about her creativity. Uh, quote, drunk on questions, she begins to believe that there is one answer, a true all-encompassing resolution, which will flood that dim region with brilliant light for once and for all, illuminating, and that's very important, word illuminating all personal conundrums. The nature of the discovery she seeks is not made clear. She's not sure of it even herself. Nothing about this story is sure, but it is related to genealogy and her own identity, a hunger to know her ancestors and to recognise inherited qualities. Lenny wants to enter the past. As if on cue, the narration segues into a contemplation of place as an entryway. Lenny, in the story, is staying in Wave's End, which is a house with many family connections. The story veers into the past tense and becomes Sally Rua's story. Sally Rua is presented as a real ancestor of Lenny's, uh, who was a... 19th century housemaid and wizard crochet and lace maker who once lived in West End, Wavesend, sorry, West End, Wavesend. Sally is sent out to work as a teenager but is ultimately driven mad by her employer's refusal to let her practice her lace making craft. And after some inappropriate behaviour, she is banished to a lunatic asylum for the rest of her days. Sally Rua's story could be seen as a fiction that Lenny is working on, although this is not made explicit, which fits in with the general understatedness of the story. Uh, Lenny's writing and her identity as a writer remain occluded in the narrative. What is made clear, however, is that Sally Rua's story within a story is total invention. Of course, Lenny tells us airily, none of that is true. It is a yarn spun out of thin air. 
in the flowering, there's a double stand-in going on. Sally Rua stands in for Lenny, who may stand in for the author, and Sally carries the burden of the thwarted art maker. The author brings out the big guns in terms of plot to punish Sally Rua for her artistic impulses. Cheerless servitude and incarceration in an asylum, perhaps an, ind an indication of the author's own interior state vis-a-vis -vis her literary ambitions in the prevailing conditions of the time. Eilish has said that Lenny, in the flowering mirrors aspects of her life in her 30s, she used the story as the basis of a play in the 1990s, which was referred to earlier. Uh, and here, in a, an interview with the Irish Times in 2017, Eilish said, when I revisited the play and Lenny, she seemed alien to me. I thought, this is a woman in the throes of a nervous breakdown. She is half mad. It was strange to go back to that story and that time. The nervous breakdown was like Sally's in the flowering desperation at the difficulty Lenny faced in trying to develop as an artist to write while holding down a full-time job and being a mother and housewife. But what comes through in the story, for me, is not despair and madness, which is kind of conveniently relocated to Sally Rua, but something more deep-seated and chronic, that is Lenny's uncertainty about her own identity and the place of fiction in her life. Sally Rua's story may dominate the narrative, but Lenny reminds us that it is she who has embroidered the story about Sally. She does exist, Lenny tells us, but can we believe her? She's a fiction writer, after all, and she declares that she does not see much difference between history and fiction, between painting and embroidery, between either of them and literature. The story ends on a question. If Sally Rua, who is Lenny's fictional construct, does not exist, then, Lenny asks, where does that leave her? Here, the anxiety seems to take on a more existential hue. Fiction in this context is seen as life-saving, as therapy, as granting definition. But even within the fiction, Lenny cannot trust or believe in her own invention, another distinctly authorly preoccupation. The second story I'm going to look at is in the context of this character stroke author's underlying struggle with literary identity is The Banana Boat, which dates from 2000, which is a decade later. In this story, Lenny is also a decade older, aged 45. She's on a family holiday in Kerry with husband Niall and two bored teenage sons, John, 16, and Arun, 14. Family life is foregrounded in the story. There's no direct mention of Lenny's writing except when the family stop, stop off en route to Tralee at her furniture shop to buy a table for Niall and, and her to write on. But the table is never bought because the shop is closed. However, although Lenny's identity as a writer is, is barely mentioned in the story, um, the, the, the narrative itself is peppered with secondary literary references which clearly reveal a kind of a writerly sensibility. So authors are constantly name-checked. There's Peg Sayers, there's Common Noun, there's Tommaso Crohn, there's Erskine Childers. 
And in relation to the plot, two very specific references are made to short stories, two short stories, Mild City, Montana by Alice Munro and The Widow's Son by Mary Lavin. So the story opens in an idyllic setting in West Kerry. This family are on their holidays, although bad weather has been forecast. Strangely, it never comes. Uh, quote, it was so beautiful, this is Lenny speaking, it was so beautiful in this sunshine that you could believe it was real, she says. But despite that, Lenny is anxious. The stated reason is that she's a worrier by nature. Quote, the details of the worries vary from time to time, but the anxiety remains the same. Death hovers somewhere around, lurking in the corners like the mists that are always out there on the Atlantic. Maybe it is because of this that I am always afraid that the rug of my joy can be pulled from under me, that the whole delicate edifice of my domestic happiness will suddenly disappear. And then her fears are made manifest. Lenny's younger son goes into the water and gets into trouble, and there is a moment where she sees that this could be a hinge in her life when she steps away from the normal into the tragedic. But even in the midst of the drama, she's seeing the event in narrative terms, calculating how the story might be told. Quote, I realise right now that there are two ends to the story, two ends to the story of my day and the story of my life. End quote. Here she refers specifically to the Monroe and Lavin stories. And anyone of a certain age will know The Widow's Son by Mary Lavin. It was on the Leaving Cert course 100 years ago. You know, the, it's a story with two endings. The eponymous young man is killed off his bicycle trying to avoid one of his mother's chickens. And in the second option, he saves himself and kills the chicken. But it causes such a rift between mother and son that he leaves home and is never heard of again. So, you know, in terms of a choice, this is like Hobson's choice for the reader, you know, neither of the endings is very palatable. Whereas both Mild City Montana and The Banana Boat present only a binary choice, life or death, but they explore, also explore the choices offered when tragedy has been averted. In the Alice Munro story, the narrator is a young mother on a long road trip with her husband and two small daughters. It's very hot and the family stops in Miles City for a swim in a public pool where one of the children gets into difficulty. The parents are nearby but are not directly on the scene when the mother, acting on some intuition, senses that something is wrong and luckily manages to save the child. After the crisis is over, the unnamed narrator says, quote, that was all we spoke about, luck. But I was compelled to picture the opposite, there's something trashy about this kind of imagining, isn't there? Something shameful, laying your finger on the wire to get the safe shock, feeling a bit of what it's like, and then pulling back. Lenny's, sounds a bit like writing, actually. Lenny's reaction echoes that of the narrator of the Monroe story. While rescuers go out to fetch her son from danger, she questions her instincts as a mother, and perhaps also as a writer. Quote, I had no intuition, just anxiety, she says. 
both of these narrators in the Alice Munro story and in Eilish's stories are undeclared writers. In the only brief reference to what she does, Munro's character says, quote, I wanted to hide so that I could get busy at my real work, which was a sort of wooing of distant parts of myself. I lived in a state of siege, always losing just what I wanted to hold on to, end quote. But the difference between them is that Lenny reaches for fiction in the heat of the drama, while Monroe's character waits until the post-mortem. Tempered with the relief that her son is safe, Lenny's reaction is primarily literary. Uh, quote, We still belong to real life, the life that is uneventful, the life that does not get described in newspapers or even now that the days of literary realism are coming to an end in books. Although, paradoxically, this life is being described in a book. When the crisis is over, Lenny tells us that she jotted down, quote, these thoughts which seem to become the story, rather like the flowering where the fictional element is displaced into the telling of Sally Rua's story. But in this narrative, they are only thoughts. They don't even qualify as a story, per se, such as Lenny's anxiety, or is it superstition? As if it's a self-reflexive recoil on her part about reaching to the near drowning of her child, firstly, as a writer considering narrative tropes, and only secondly, as a mother. Lenny's competing anxieties of not being a good enough mother, because she's a writer, and not having a life sufficiently interesting to make literature from it, are both... I would say, crucially, feminine, female dilemmas. Can I be both, the story is asking. Can I be good at both? Is it an either-or choice? In fact, reading this story, I was reminded of Esther Greenwood's description of the same dilemma in Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. Quote, I, I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story, from the tip of every branch like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children, and another fig was a famous poet, and another fig was a brilliant... I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. Added to that, I think Lenny is asking, can the domestic ever be the stuff of literature? In this story, Lenny is revealed as even more unresolved about her identity as a writer than in the earlier The Flowering. Elish had said that the banana boat is, quote, closer to my idea of what a short story should be like, a little stone in a pond rippling out or, in, or a world in a grain of sand. That's a good short story. For me, the ripples of the banana boat extend out beyond plot, to these underlying doubts that seem to torment Lenny as a character. After reading this story, I found myself wondering about her future outside of the frame of the story and was waiting for the next instalment. There are, of course, other stories that feature Lenny. I'm only choosing the three that appear in this volume. Um, I, I'm going to stick my neck out here in a kind of a cheeky speculation and suggest that Ailish does revisit the character in the third of the stories I'm going to talk about today, even though the character is not explicitly identified as Lenny. Illumination, 
is written another decade on in Ailish's 2012 collection, The Shelter of Neighbours. It's written in the first person and it features an unnamed writer, for once not in the domestic setting, but in a place where her identity as a writer is foregrounded, a Californian writer's retreat. She has two children, age 17 and 15. So if this is Lenny, then going by their ages, this experience happens only a year after the banana boat. But despite having escaped the domestic sphere, although she mentions that her children wonder why she has left them for a month, she can't quite surrender to the freedom the retreat affords her. Even her reading biographies of famous writers in the retreat library only heightens her feelings of non-entitlement. Quote, such biographies make me wonder if an ordinary sane person lacking any stunning eccentricity could be a writer at all. Close quote. Echoing the concerns of the Lenny of the flowering, she writes that, crucially, the retreat lacks what she had hoped to find. Quote, brilliant insights into life and literature, an answer to a question I couldn't even articulate. I had no answers to offer myself, but I had hoped to sit at the feet of philosophers, listen to discussions that Plato might have organised, symposia where the dialogue itself led to the solution of the problem, or to some great discovery. All my life, I had been waiting for some answer to come to me from the conversation of others or from a book or from the clouds themselves or the sunlight on the ocean, and this had not happened. So that pe passage is very redolent of the passage in the, in the earlier story, The Flowering. And here again, even when the exterior, exterior conditions are conducive to her art, there are the answers she can't find, the Plato's cave denied to her the world of creativity and authorship she feels locked out of or unworthy of. And for the first time, the spectre of failure, literary failure, is stated directly. Quote, nor did I mention that my last two books had received terrible reviews, been universally hated, and that my life as a writer was probably over now. End quote. If this is Lenny... It is the first time we see that despite the sometimes crippling anxieties of authorship, she has been busy writing all along. Yet the un unease remains, quote, some answer about writing is what I wanted. What is it for? Every day I felt I was on the brink, that the next day my brain, myself, would fill with light, that something wonderful would happen, end quote. And in effect, something wonderful does happen, an, unset an unsettling but transcendent encounter with a family, mysterious family who live in the woods, which may be a dream, or again could be the dreamlike fugue that accompanies the fictional process. Are we witnessing in the creation of the story of this strange kind of perfect family? And it's interesting that they are a family. What Lenny is actually working on. Are we seeing it happening in front of our eyes? Is this another story within a story? And yet, despite all the literary disappointment, we find that by the end of this latest Lenny instalment, if that's what it is, that she has gamely adopted the Beckettian hashtag, I'll go on. Um, quote, I knew I would go back to the beloved fog-bound island and struggle towards an answer like a woman who has stepped on the stray sod and will wander around in one field for the rest of her life, end quote. 
Although Eilish describes herself as not a natural novel writer, I would disagree, the writerly preoccupation running through these stories, which is both integral to the narrative and standing apart from it, seemed to me to represent a kind of exquisite lengthening of the short story form. It's like the contemplation and development of an idea and a character over decades, you know, with the same kind of scenario surrounding them, which seems to me not a million miles away from the natural territory of the novel. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mary Morrissey. And if you'd like to hear uh, more from Mary Morrissey on the novels of Eilish McGuivna, she will be speaking about the dancers dancing at the Ennis Book Club Festival on Friday, March 2nd. And um, it's something I'm looking forward to very much. Our next speaker is Professor Frank McGuinness, born in the county of Donegal. He is Professor of Creative Writing here at UCD, where he studied as an undergraduate and as a postgraduate with Eilish. He has written many plays, versions, films for screen and television, five volumes of poetry and two novels. He has just dramatised Oscar Wilde's De Profundis with Simon Callow, which Simon Callow performed at the Vaudeville Theatre in London early in January 2018. I'll give you a frank First, thank you for inviting me to celebrate um, Elisha's career as a writer and um, her wonderful work here at UCD, where she's been uh, a magnificent colleague, as always. Um, as Paul says, we go back a long way. I first met Elisha when we were undergraduates here in UCD, and that was in the early 70s. We were the first fleet banished from Ellsworth Terrace, sent into Belfield exile. The new college location lacking in every Babylonian pomp. <laughs> it was then a, a scary skeleton of a haunt, barely a tree in the vicinity, where really what one did for social entertainment was queue. <laughs> Queue to enter the library of insufficient books. Queue for the toilets, where a figure of a woman wearing a veil indicate this was reserved exclusively for nuns. That is true. <laughs> queue for coffee that tasted of tea. And queue for tea that tasted like books which should have been in the library. <laughs> we survived, the pair of us. Cut as both are from tough Donegal stuff. Me from the garrison town of Bunkrana, Elish's father, hailing from the Gaeltacht of Glenvar, a territory she has mapped with a raven's eye for detail. We specialise in English, English on its own, no second subject. Group four, it was called then, and there were eight of us that year. Old Middle English demanded half of our scholarly attention. And it's just to declare that we embraced the literatures of that period warmly. For we each chose to follow an MPhil in medieval studies as postgraduates. It was a tough call. 
We ended up completing, in that two years, a major thesis, a minor thesis. We sat two exceedingly demanding examination papers investigating medieval literature on top of those theses. And then we had to tackle two very hard linguistic evaluations, testing our proficiency in another language related to our research, Old Norse for me and Old Irish for Irish. So top that in two years of study. <laughs> two years of study, each of us on the most meagre of grants as we were managing to keep body and soul apart. <laughs> it's accurate then to say that during the MPhil we were poor but we were exhausted. <laughs> Yet when it finished, finding paid work was a necessity. And the tough training, I'm happy to say, prepared us to brave anything. And we did. The consequence of this is that the love of that literature from that time, from that period, has never left us. Do I need to wonder why? For me, it is always embodied, as I hope it's embodied for Elish, the closest, clearest demonstration of where I came from in this country. Our solid, deep loyalties, the intricate resolutions of love and hate, the shock and spells of lasting allegiances valued so perilously dear in my local culture. For as both as authors, it authenticates the diversity of voices competing within a single story, a liberating awareness that the opposite of what is status could also be true, that the blood, the blood that pumps the human heart has as well a superhuman capacity to bless us with the red radiance of joy or leave us in the spilt pit of sorrow and mourning. Those years studying that writing, in short, made us what we are and weren't we lucky to have them and weren't we lucky to have each other. We know one great woman, one great vital woman, stands at the core of Chaucer's poetry and Chaucer's poetry formed the basis of Elish's PhD on the Friar's Tale. But this woman is defiant, raising the rafters, carrying all before her, very much the marrying kind, and the wife of Bath, Chaucer called her. She features in a poem of my first collection, and she beats her way into Illish Nidivnia's early midwife to the fairies, where she has another tale of her own to tell, meeting a troubled modern woman in contemporary Bath, letting rip as is her want, as was her want, and as always will be her want. This is a little postmate. Now I met her in a pub. The Hop Pole Inn, it's called. It's in Lintley Stoke, five miles from the centre of the town. She was fat, of course, but that's sort of fat which is fertile and attractive. Not a morbid, sad kind. Pleasantly plump, people used to say, in the old days before health and anorexia came in. She had a denim skirt, tight, and certainly short for someone with such thick thighs. Red tights, a red sweater, the loose, long kind that's fashionable now, and always among students, but not so much among 40-year-olds. Only hers was not all that loose. It left not too much to the imagination. 
Her hair was dyed blonde, sticking out around her head in yellow spikes from under a navy blue bandana type of thing. She was drinking a pint at the bar. And what was I doing? I was alone, pussyfooting across the threshold, cat creeping into the inn, caviling, apologising. To whom? There was nobody there, but it must have been to myself. Then I had dim suspicion that something or somebody was missing, that I'd mislaid a thought or a time or a person, but I was damned if I could remember what I'm getting so absent-minded. Yes, I eat half a banana a day for the potassium, which is great for the memory, uh, preventing or starving off similarity in most, but not apparently in me. What those bananas do for me is they make me fat. Yes, love, she turned to me, and I realised she was the barmaid. After all, though on the wrong side of it. A pint of bitter. What do you mean? You don't drink pints and you don't drink bitter. As a matter of fact, you don't really know what bitter is, except in the north of Germany, when it's definitely something else and plural, and if that were that, then you would certainly not order it. She heaved herself off the stool and went in behind the counter, drawing a pint of oaky liquid in a few seconds. So efficient, so quick, so much less a pain in the ass than the beer I'm used to. On holiday then? Yes, I said after a pause. And then, remembering Johnny, I asked, what's a holiday? She answered nonchalantly, search me. I've never had one as such. Oh, pilgrimages, voyages, yes, holidays now. But anyway, welcome to Beside Bath. And she came back out and said, what's your name? Oh, I paused again. Maureen, I said, I think. It was the first name that came into my head. It was when I was three, the girl who lived in the house next door, and was five, and tall as a tree and lovely, was called Maureen. She had long hair, brown in colour, and ate nothing except celery. All this I knew, but not my own name. I'm Alison. Hello, Dame Alison. They call me, I know, I know. And I did. Tell me, have you always kept a pub? No, of course not. I didn't need to in the old days. Merry England. I had a husband to support me then. One husband? Five, ten, a hundred, what does it matter? They don't support me anymore, so I run a pub. Don't own it, naturally. I'm just a manageress. Well, it should suit you. You're the personality for the job, I guess. Oh, sure. Jolly matronly type, that's me. I can do it as well as the next, but the fact is, it doesn't suit me at all. What I fancy is ambling around on a stout mare, going on trips abroad or at home, having a chat. You can have chats here, though, can't you? Or in between the washing up, I can. I used to leave all that sort of thing to Bert, but poor old Bert, he kicked the can. Yes, poor old Bert. You should get a dishwasher. I have already. Like a husband it is, does all the easy things and leaves the messy ones for me. Hmm, tell me. I settled myself comfortably in my seat, which was a deep tweed cushion. Tell me about Jankin. What happened in the end to him and you? Oh, I'd nearly forgotten about him. It was long ago. He was a student. Oh, a clerk he was of Oxenford. Is that the one you mean? You know him? Sort of. He's written a lot about the church fathers. Yeah, he was a great one for the books, old Jenkin. Or young Jenkin, I should say. God, he was half my age, even then. But nice hair he got. I fell for his hair and put up the books for the sake of that. 
I thought you fell for his legs. Oh, them two, them two. Men's legs, my word. I haven't seen legs like that in 300 years or so. They still feel that long. They're out of fashion, such a <coughs> I can't agree, I must say. And I considered legs, white, black-haired, skinny and white, black-haired, fat, grey-white like flour and water paste. They weren't the same, the legs I knew. No, not at all. You know men's legs now, how they're thin and all. It's from covering them up all the time. If men had their legs out like we do, they'd be a lot fatter, they would. They used to be much fatter. Even his. Well, his weren't so much fat as shapely. That's what I liked about him, actually, as he walked up the aisle. I could see the legs then. Golden brown, covered with fine hair, like the sun danced on. The way sun dances on lots of water, on little summer waves. The legs walked along an aisle, disembodied. Was that in the abbey? Well, that was it. On the altar, Johnny, fat around legs, his blue jeans screaming, I just want to touch it, touch it, touch it, let me touch it. No, it wasn't in the abbey. At least not the one you're talking about. Beside the pump room and all. Lord, no, I wouldn't have been seen dead in that neighbourhood even then. There were no pump room then, of course. Not that prissy place they have now. No baths, no abbey, nothing like that. Just a nice little tavern and a few washerwomen. Very civilised, really. I can't stand that place now. It's a bit Jane Austen-y. Oh, you can say that again. One woman I could never take, Jane Austen. Silly bitch, man, crazy. <laughs> well, she seems less interested than, than you were, in all fairness. Well, maybe I should have said she was husband-mad. The only thing in life was husbands, as far as she was concerned. She never even got one. Weren't you obsessed with husbands yourself? I was more interested in getting rid of them. Besides, because I had, I had them. One, two, three, four, five. Once I caught a fish alive, I knew what they were like. Not Jane, it was all pie in the sky as far as she was concerned. Well, at least she did write and analyse the situation a bit. There is somewhere a pen rusty, an ink will dry, a choir of paper lying unopened in a drawer. Did I read it all? Did I read it? Did I read of it? Did I see it? Is it mine? Or some other woman's? Or every woman? And so it goes on. Suffice to say, Dame Alison Alicia's story is still as Chaucer so beautifully lets her tell us. I was young and full of rajalie. Stubborn and strong and jolly as a pie. Young and full of rajalie. Pretty accurate edition, doesn't it? Pretty accurate. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Frank McGuinness. Um, up next, we have Philomena Carney Byrne, who completed her MA here in creative writing in 2016. She was subsequently awarded the John McGahern Inaugural Award with a residency at the Tyrone Guthrie Centre, an Irish Arts Council Emerging Writer Award to assist in the completion of a novel begun on the MA, which she told me before this afternoon's session that she has finished, 
Um, previous awards, congratulations. Previous awards include the Francis McManus Award, the Brian McMahon Award, and the Words on the Waves Award. She was long-listed for the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Award in 2013, and for 2016, she the board got Irish Short Story of the Year Award. She is originally from Dublin and now lives, <coughs> excuse me, in rur- in a rural area in County Leitrim. Ladies and gentlemen, Philomena Carney Burns. Lovely to be here. Thank you for organising it and for inviting me. Um, so uh, I have to decide between my favourite stories as a writer, you know, try to pick one. And I just want to mention some of my favourite ones that, that we mentioned already, but these are uh, how lovely the slopes are, in case people haven't read them. They're just fabulous. The day Elvis Presley died, and the moon is clear, the horseman's near, New Zealand flax, and uh, the coast of Wales. Um, but in the end, I went for a story, uh, one of my favourites as a writer. Um, in fact, when I read it first, before I was a writer, it sort of went under my radar. And when I went back to look at it, it just, it, it's amazing. So it's, I'm going to read from The Banana Boat, which is uh, in the pale gold of Alaska. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say a bit about The Banana Boat, why I chose it, then read a piece from the beginning uh, to give the flavour of the story. Mary's read some excerpts from it. Uh, then I'll make some more comments, and then I want to read the last page and a half, which is spectacular. So, first, need to say something about categorising writers according to general principles, um, according to archetype. That's actually something I, I quite like doing. Um, so, I'm always interested to see if I can name the daemon or the god to whom a particular writer owes allegiance. Chekhov, for example, seems to me to embody the archetype of the psychologist. And there are times when his stories read almost as case notes, although they're extremely insightful case notes, of course. John McGahern might embody something of the priest. At times, there's the flavour of the ascetic or the canonical about his work. Or maybe McGahern is a stonemason working in granite. However, it seems to me that in the first instance, writers are divided into two overarching categories, which I'll call the shamans and the scientists. As a writer, the shaman aims to present the experience itself, whereas the scientist presents their reflections, observations and commentary on the experience. Shamanic types excel in in evoking the intensity of sensations, feelings and thoughts as if they were happening right there and then. And I put Dennis Johnson, George Saunders, Jean Rhys, Zora Neale Hurston and possibly James Joyce under that umbrella. Scientists, although they may invest time in presenting the experience, will additionally furnish us with their lethally accurate observations, their cruel assessment and naming of what happens in life. They will say clearly, this is what this is. I'd put Chekhov, Jane Austen, Alice Munro and Flannery O'Connor under this heading. It's hot versus cool, perhaps, visceral versus insightful. One reports primarily from within the experience, the other from without. And obviously there's usually a bit of both going on, but one or other archetype will tend to predominate, I think, and the story will depend on this for its effects. I see Eilid Nagivna as operating primarily in the second mode, that of the scientists. Part of the reason I chose Banana Boat is because the concerns that are reflected on 
are most are the most essential. Mortality, the illusions of safety in our transient and fragile lives. How slender the difference between states of tragedy and states of taking for granted that we're all okay. I was a student of Ayesha Given on the MA course here, and on a number of occasions I heard her give a succinct prerequisite for every story. Something happens. But to whom does the something happen? The obvious answer is to the characters or character in the narrative. But of course, that's not the real answer. The real answer is that something happens to the reader. Usually we have something happen to the character in order that the reader is impacted. This generates the tension that keeps us glued to the page. However, I chose Banana Boat partly because in this story, although there's nail-biting tension throughout the 22 pages, actually nothing or very little happens to the characters. Almost everything that happens in the banana boat takes place in the reader. The other reason I chose this story is because of a dramatic switch close to the end, when the mode swerves from a gently shamanic evocation of how the day is going for the narrator into fully-fledged scientific mode. Here's how the story goes. A woman is on holiday in Kerry with her husband and their two teenage sons. The boys are at that awkward age when they can be unsatisfied by everything. The weather is lovely. One day, on a trip to the beach, the younger boy, Ruin, goes out on a paddle boat, while the rest of the family swim, sunbathe or read. At one point, the narrator becomes anxious that Ruin might have drowned. He hasn't. They go home. She reflects on how lucky they are. So how does this become such a tension-filled experience for the reader? How is it that in the reader's mind a tragedy has taken place, as if it has happened to the woman in the story and as if it has happened to the reader? Partly we are lured further and further into imagining the tragedy that doesn't happen by the incremental introduction of what-ifs as the narrator describes the day and the daily underlying awareness she has of life's fragility. She repeatedly describes something exquisite, usually in nature, then adds a qualification. Not a big one, just a small, ordinary qualification, which eventually leads us to the precipice in all our minds, where we glimpse the abyss of our own death, or the death of those we love. Here's the first paragraph of the story. We'd been on holiday for a week in a summer cottage in Kerry. The weather had been glorious, Every day the sun shone, blessing the landscape. I'd been sunbathing on golden strands, swimming in clear blue water with views on each side of moss-coloured hills rolling into the ocean, or walking on lanes lined with flower-studded ditches, purple self-heel, blue sheep's bit, everywhere the brilliant yellow of dandelion and buttercup. The typical outdoor sound had been the buzzing of bees. It had been a honeyed landscape and a honeyed holiday. Here's the beginning of the second paragraph. Our two teenage boys had not been enjoying it very much, however. And there's the first introduction of a small, ordinary tension in the use of the word, however. Here's the opening of the third paragraph. One thing was clear. This would be one of our last holidays as a family. Next year, they would probably refuse to come with us. And there we have the introduction of the theme of loss, as plain and ordinary as children growing up. 
As they set out on their trip, the husband, Niall, asks the narrator, did you turn the oven on? Yes, she says confidently. But then she goes on to say that the question has made her very uneasy and that, in fact, she's a compulsive worrier. She says that the worries vary. I worry about money, pensions, the future. I worry about my elderly mother. I worry about Niall, who is also elderly or getting there, older than me. That he could become ill, that he could die, is always an idea conducive to a good old worry. She goes on on page 159 in this this book. Sometimes I think that this must be the root of all the worries, and this is the reason why I cannot be quite at peace. We're having a wonderful life together, just as we're having a wonderful holiday, when we forget that the boys are hating every minute of it. But I am somehow conscious of the threat of mortality putting an end to it all. Death hovers somewhere around, like the mists that are always out there on the Atlantic, sweeping towards us on the wind. Maybe it is because of this that I am always afraid that the rug of my joy can be pulled from under me, that the whole delicate edifice of my domestic happiness will suddenly disappear. The structure of our secure, contented life seems to be held together by some magical charm. But I worry that at any moment that charm may lose its subtle, intangible power. Maybe that is it. Or maybe it's much simpler, that I'm premenstrual or premenopausal. The day trip goes on. The younger boy goes out in the hired paddle boat. His mother sees him paddling out beyond the younger children. She has a swim while Niall and her older son read and sunbathe. Everything is fine. After her swim, she lazes on her beach towel, eavesdropping as some women chatting nearby. Then it's time to go, time to get ruined from the paddle boat. Page 170 in this. I look over at the boats. At first I can't see Ruin, then I catch sight of him. He's moving out again. He seems to be cycling faster than previously, and soon he's going out further than he went before. He passes the last of the big paddle boats and is out among the windsurfers. Then he passes them. He's beyond the mouth of the bay, well past the curve of the beach. He is out alone in the sea on his surf bike, still moving quite quickly. Eventually, she gives in to her anxiety and runs to the lifeguard, who's sitting in front of his hut. I think my child has got carried out to sea, she shouts at him. There's some confusion. There's an offshore wind sweeping surfers out of the bay. They can't establish if Ruin is with the lifeguard on the banana boat or not. It appears not. Right here, as she waits to find out if they can locate her son, the narrator describes something of how she is. This is page 173. I'm not shaking. I'm suspended in a sort of jelly. The water is full of happy children and fathers, paddling around, laughing and having a good time. The beach is golden with its holiday makers, its bronze boys and girls, its bikini-clad mothers passing on recipes for vegetable bake, its toddlers making sandcastles. Normal life, and I'm a part of it still, but only just. I'm on the edge of a cliff. In a minute, I could tumble off and fall into another kind of life altogether. A life of pain and tragedy, loss and mourning, funeral arrangements. If. The long aftermath of life without ruin. Unimaginable. It happens. One moment a family is cocooned in the happiness of normal life. The next is elsewhere, in another land or another ocean. It happens in a few moments. Those are the few moments I'm in, the liminal time 
between ordinariness and tragedy, also of an ordinary kind. To others, it will be so, or it will be so ordinary and instantly forgettable. While for me, it will be the tragedy, the raw edge of the unimaginably terrible. Parents never get over it. I have seen it. I have heard it. I know it. Then ruin is found, and they head for home in the car. And now in the last four pages of the story, Nigivna does something enormously risky. This, as I said earlier, is the other reason I chose Banana Boat. She brings in two other stories, the ones Mary mentioned, both, as I see it, written in the scientific mode, The Widow's Son by Mary Lavin and Mild City, Montana by Alice Munro. Nigivna describes these two stories and says what she thinks of them, which is a great pleasure for the reader, especially if they happen to be stories one knows and loves. In both stories, as in Banana Boat, there are mothers and children. In both stories, there's a description of a child dying and of a child who nearly but doesn't die. However, and this is what makes Banana Boat stand out in its accomplishment, in the given story, there is no description of the drowned child. He and his tragic death haven't happened on the page, not spelled out as in Monroe and Lavin's stories. The tragedy exists only in the mind of the reader. In Wild City, Montana, Alice Munro, as I see it, exemplifies her archetypal sub-role of storyteller as philosopher. Wild City is a terrific story, one of my favourites, although just close to the end, there might be a little smidge of philosophical obtuseness. In reading The Widow's Son, we see Mary Lavin in her archetypal role as judge. Much of the power of Lavin's stories come from this role, I think, there are so many examples where her characters are judged and found sorely wanting. I often wonder whether in reading her work there's something of an illicit thrill for the reader, or this reader anyway, in the sheer power of her condemnation. But now, just when you think Banana Boat is ending, Nigivna forges on for another page and a half in true scientific mode. And this, to me, is the most important and significant section of the work. It's here, I think, where we glimpse the archetypal subcategory that Nigivna is in. I call storyteller as alchemist, because like the old alchemists, she takes the base metal of ordinary living, and through a process of repeated distillation, she transforms this material into the gold of insight. What's particularly striking is the clarity of the insight presented. There's not a word of obtuseness here, and the delicacy and compassion afforded to her characters so fragile in the face of their mortality, and indeed afforded to all those mentioned in the work, both in and beyond the narrative, were left at the end of the story asking how. How did she do that? And now I'll read the last page and a half. As we went along by Ventry Bay, I remember the day we had found the kitchen full of smoke. Accidents. We could go back now and the house could be burnt to the ground if I had in fact left the oven on, and I could have. I'm increasingly absent-minded. I thought it unlikely that this would be the case, just as I had when the girl said it's not ruin in the boat, known that it was ruin, because I knew that speck on the banana boat was a speck I recognised, ruin. I felt that we still belonged to the lucky section of humanity does not, that does not fall over the edge, usually. We still belonged to the charmed circle that may get an occasional premonition of disaster, but does not actually experience it head-on. And sure enough, as we turn into the long grass of our field, it's clear that the oven was not left on. 
the house is still standing at the end of its field, waiting for us to open the door and sleep there. We are still alive. We are still safe, alive and safe. We still belong to real life, the life that is uneventful, the life that does not get described in newspapers, or even, now that the days of literary realism are coming to an end, in books. The protected, ordinary, uneventful life, which is the basis of civilization and happiness and everything that is good. The desirable life. We still belong to the part of life that is protected from danger by its own caution, by its own love, by its own rules, by its own belief in its own invulnerability, usually. But how reliable is that usually? In a minute it can be swept away on a freak wave, on an offshore wind, by a fast car or a momentary lapse of concentration. It is precarious and delicate, our dull and ordinary happiness, seeming sturdy as a well-built house, but as fluttering and light as a butterfly on a waving clump of clover. As ephemeral as that, as beautiful and priceless. Ruin's close shave happened on the 16th of July, 1999. I thought about the event and wrote these thoughts down late that night and then fell asleep beside my husband in the wood-panelled bedroom we have shared on holidays for 20 years. In Fairfield, New Jersey, John Kennedy Jr., his wife and her sister, were just taking off into the sunset in their Piper Saratoga 11 HP, on their way to a family wedding in Martha's Vineyard, the famous holiday resort 5,000 miles from Dingle, on the opposite shore of the Atlantic. An aviation expert, Mr Serge Roach, some days later, described the Saratoga Piper as reliable. By then, the newspapers were full of speculation about what had happened and why John Kennedy Jr., his wife and her sister, were at the bottom of the ocean. Um, thanks, Phil. Um, a graduate of the MFA programme in creative writing, Henrietta McCurvey has written three novels. Her third, Violet Hill, is to be published in June and is the story of two unusual female detectives a hundred years apart. Her previous novel, The Heart of Everything, was an Irish Times book club choice and tells the story of estranged adult children forced to reunite when their mother mysteriously disappears. She's a Hennessy First Fiction Award and was the very happy inaugural winner of the UCD May Binchy Travel Award in 2014. Her travel award project, The General Synopsis at Midnight, explored the sea areas of the shipping forecast. Henrietta McCarvey. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. A couple of things I've heard earlier on, particularly about Eilish, about your chronicling of the Celtic Tiger and society, reminded me of an article I saw last week about Detroit. And in an effort to combat the narrative of Detroit, which is of decay and race riots and violence, the current uh, mayor, who's an Irish-American man, has hired a chief storyteller. That's the job title to rewrite the story of the city. And I saw that article and I thought that man's job is to give voice back to the people and back to the neighbourhoods and back to the city. And I thought to myself, we already have that person. We have you. 
Um, I've chosen the story The Pale Gold of Alaska. It was first published in the collection of the same name in 2000, which was selected as a notable book of the year by the New York Times and is included in the Selected Stories, which was published last year. The story takes us by ship first on the Maid of Erin as it sails from Liverpool to New York. From there, we move to Philadelphia and then Montana and finally the Klondike in northwest Canada. It concerns the clandestine affair between Sophie, a beautiful Irish emigrant wife, our Maid of Erin, and Northwind, a Blackfoot Indian man, while her controlling pious husband, Ned Burns, digs for silver first and, when that fails to make his fortune, for gold in the nearby Bitterroot Mountains. But Sophie has fallen for Northwind, who she met when he came to her cabin asking for food. So when Ned wants to move on to try their luck at the Klondike, she doesn't want to go. They arrange for her to be abducted by Blackfoot's tribe, and she is. But before she can move camp with the tribe, Ned and his crew find them, and oblivious to the fact that she was kidnapped by choice, take her back. Ned and Sophie move north to the Klondike, which is where I will start, even though it's at the end of the story. Sophie had a baby up there in the north sometime the following spring. The baby was fine, a small, light-skinned boy with black, straight hair, not like Ned's or Sophie's. They called him Teddy. People often said to Ned, he's the image of you. Sophie loved her child. She fed him with her own milk. She wrapped him in furs. She sang to him and told him stories about Ireland, about the mountains, about the creek that ran sweetly outside her cabin in Montana. Before Christmas, Ned hit gold, the pale gold of Alaska, which was the most valuable kind. His joy was boundless. By summer, we'll be rich enough to go back home. We'll buy a good big farm in Derry and live like gentry. After Christmas, the baby caught a cold. For two days, the sound of his small cough racked the cabin, and then, unable to get his breath, he died. After that, the black sickness descended on Sophie, immured in her cold cabin in a land of ice. It descended on her mind and her heart like a blanket of black frost, blotting out every song and every flower that grew there, snuffing her flame. Nothing ignited it again. Ned prayed for her, night after night, in long litanies of supplication to his beloved virgin. Mother most merciful, mother most pure, mother most renowned, pray for her. After a while, Sophie, who had not been one for praying before, began to join him in his prayers. Morning star, help of the sick, comfort of the afflicted, pray for us. She recited them not only in the evenings, kneeling at the rough wooden chairs in the cabin before bedtime, but all day long. Mother of God, star of the sea. She walked around the shanty town, wrapped in her sealskin coat, chanting these incantations without cease. To the litany, she added an epithet of her own, North wind, north wind, north wind. Nobody noticed that it broke the rhythm of the song or that it was in any other way extraneous. Nobody would have commented if they had. It was generally thought among the Irishmen, pious or secular, sensible or wild, who were hitting gold with Ned, that Sophie's ordeal in Missoula at the hands of the Indians had affected her brain and that she was not quite right in the head. The first time I read The Pale Gold of Alaska, I wondered to myself, is it a short story? A long short story? Is it a short novel? It felt like there was a novel's worth of story contained in the prose, which is crisp and fresh as the snow around Sophie's cabin. And I thought of Mary Lavin's famous description of a short story as an arrow in flight, or that other common understanding of a short story as something put under a microscope. 
Yet to my mind, the pale gold of Alaska is a telescope. It captures the perimeter of an entire world and holds it in its hand for us to examine under a light that captures details with an intense clarity. Sophie travels from Donegal and then to Liverpool and then to America. She and Derryman Ned meet for the first time on the voyage and are engaged by the time the ship docks. Being a maid from Erin is exactly the future her sisters, Sheila and Winnie, have planned for, just as for themselves, and they are disconcerted when she refuses to accept this fate. From the outset, we know that reality not matching the idea or the desire is key within the story, beginning with Sophie's sister Sheila's reaction to her first sight of New York. Soon she would be in America. America? It was a word she had carried in her head for a long time, a word, a dream and a hope shining in her eyes, encouraging her heart. But it was not something her mind could encompass now that the moment of landing was drawing so close. America, the word becoming land and lights and buildings in front of her eyes. Too abruptly it had appeared in the end, after all the voyaging and imagining, she felt as if she had awoken suddenly from a vivid dream. She tried briefly to cling on to it before it vanished completely, before reality rushed in and blotted out the picture she had carried in her head for most of her life. Such a reaction contrasts with Northwind's life. He has been on the move since he was born in the year of Little Bighorn, he tells Sophie. He has moved further away from home. If home was the sowing fields, the winter hunting grounds, he had moved to the Badlands. For him, moving is a natural part of life, not the unreal dream it is for Sophie's sister or the disjointed, avaricious business it is for Ned. Sophie is very beautiful, a Cinderella, her slim, blonde, good looks contrasting with those of her sisters, Winnie and Sheila, who are described as buxom, with their dense hair pinned to the backs of their heads in hard black balls. Her sisters look like women whose fate was sealed. And Sheila is described as having a round potato face, pocked with bumps and shadowy mistakes, not at all like Sophie's. But Ned, we know from the outset, is no Prince Charming. He is cruel and manipulative. He has been violent to her. He wants Sophie to be admired, to work hard. His opinion is that she should be a credit to him, but only up to a point. In Montana, when she suggests she could teach the local children because there was no school, he dismisses her idea. His scorn was so immense that she believed he must be right. But Kathleen was sceptical. Apprenticed for six years, I never heard tell of that, she said. Anyway, what odds? You know more than the children anyhow, she said, and more than most of us. She did not say more than Ned, but that's what she meant. Ned could read a bit and sign his name, but he could not read a newspaper. He couldn't be bothered. The small print hurt his eyes, and he had never written a letter. I suppose they get some sort of training, Sophie said. We're not going to get a trained teacher out here in the back of nowhere, said Kathleen. There aren't many like you here, either. What do you mean? Sophie was not being entirely disingenuous. A girl like you, a fine-looking girl who can read and write. Nobody knows what you're doing here. I'm here because I'm married to Ned, Sophie protested. Aye, Kathleen said, looking curiously at her. Well, I'm fine, Sophie said. I like it here. Well, that's grand, Kathleen said, but you could spare a thought for the children. If you can't have a child of your own, I don't think you should interfere with other people's, was Ned's rejoinder to that. You think you're so clever, but... He did not finish the sentence. Many colours shine in the pale gold of Alaska. The gold of the title is just one element of the palette. While in Philadelphia, Sophie works in the finishing room of a textile mill. She buys herself a new outfit with her wages, a snow-white blouse, black skirt, and a small black and red hat. In their cabin in Montana, the deerskins on the floor are described as red and silver, snowy white. 
The contrast between these pure folkloric colours and those she has left behind in Ireland are clear. Where she came from, cloth was blackish-brown, cream or a rust colour obtained from the lichens that grew on the rocks. These diluted versions, blackish-brown, cream, rust, are of the past, now that she is living with real colour, black, white, red. Later on, we are told that Ireland becomes a dim and unpleasant memory, as though its very colours fade from her mind. Northwind is a Blackfoot Indian, described as the colour of a dark forest animal, a fox, a bear, while she looks like an urban aberration. When her baby dies, the sickness that descends on her is black. Sophie, in one way, reminds me of the naive young Catherine Tilney in Jane Austen's novel Northanger Abbey, because as happens to Catherine, though of course in completely different ways and circumstances, Sophie is a woman whose character gets written for her by other people. Her sisters and husband each try to construct her to make her into a person that they can more easily recognise, maid, wife, mother. But how can they rewrite or remake someone who doesn't yet honestly inhabit herself? She only becomes herself when she meets Northwind, only when she has her baby, which of course makes it so much sadder because this final true sense of herself is taken away from her too. Sophie is supposedly abducted by Northwind, but in reality her captor is her husband. The woman who worked in the factory and wore the smart outfit of black, white and red. The person who, we're told, walked daintily, proud of herself, happy to flaunt her fine clothes when Ned was not around to put a damper on her tendency to show off, disappears. In Montana, Ned buys her a sealskin coat, which is described as thick but flat, silvery grey and silvery white, like the animal from which it had come. In this new sealskin, we are told... When she wrapped herself in it, she felt she was a different person. She did not feel human at all, but part of the huge animal world which surrounded her now on all sides, which was with her inside and outside her cabin. She felt like the animals she did not see but heard in the depths of the night, barking or screaming in the forest and the mountain. In Irish, Scottish and some Scandinavian folklore, as we heard earlier on, a selkie is a seal that can transform into a human and live on land. Selkie stories often involve the skin being stolen by a man and without it, the female Selkie is trapped and cannot escape back to the sea. She stays on land with him, they have children. It is often a child who finds the seal skin hidden away and shows it to their mother, thus freeing her to return to the water, her real home. This motif of skin is echoed in Ned's words when Sophie is found at Northwind's camp. Ned says, I'd like to strip their skin off and roast them skinless. Ned has power over Sophie, which he wields economically and physically. Northwind's power over her is internal. He recalibrates what she believes in. When Ned first tells her he wants to go to the Klondike, that only the white, light blonde gold of the snowy Arctic would be good enough for America, we can see her inner balance begin to tip sides. It seemed to her that her life had become a balancing act as she moved from east to west, choosing the lesser of two evils all the time. Ned was better than Sheila and housework in Philadelphia. Being alone in a cabin in Montana was better than working in a factory in Philadelphia. Now going to the Klondike was Ned was supposed to be better than staying in the cabin here. But her judgment was faltering. She could no longer weigh up one choice against another and see quickly which was the best. Northwind had skewed her power to do that, had taken away her ability to distinguish black from white, silver from gold, bad from good, good from better. There isn't enough money, you can't stay here. If I taught the children, they'd give me food and fuel, Sophie protested weakly, but knowing as she said the words that they were true, she could stay here on her own and survive. Don't be silly, he said firmly. You can't teach anyone. What if the gold in the Klondike also turns out to be the wrong kind? 
It's the right kind, and I'm going to get it, he said. In spite of his experiences, Ned had not changed. He, still, he was still always convinced that he knew exactly the right thing to do. The pale gold of Alaska reverses Selkie folklore. North Wind abducts Sophie in order to physically and emotionally free her. Her sealskin coat exemplifies the world she really wants, the world of the wilderness and North Wind, but it is an illusion. The traditional escape route for a Selkie, a child finding the coat and returning it to its mother, suggesting that a child can be an agency of change for its mother, is lost to her, for her baby is dead. By the end of the story, Sophie is no longer Irish, but she is no longer the Americanized version of herself she tried to make herself become in Philadelphia in her neat, pretty outfit designed to attract attention. She is a woman shrouded in a sealskin coat, walking around the town, praying ceaselessly to herself. By the end of the story and the agonising beauty of the last lines, it was generally thought among the Irishmen that she was not right in the head. We know that she is lost. We know that she is trapped until death with her true captor, Ned. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Henrietta. Our final speaker this afternoon is Lorcan Byrne. Lorcan is from Bray, County Wicklow, and he graduated from UCD in the 1970s with a BA in English and French and a higher diploma in education. He spent most of his working life involved in secondary school education and on retirement returned to UCD in 2015 to study for an MA in creative writing. His short stories have been shortlisted for several awards, including the Hennessy Emerging Fiction Award, and more recently in 2017, the Column Tobin International Short Story Competition, the Doolan International Short Story Competition, and RTE Radio's One's Francis McManus Award, Lorcanburg. So hello everyone, and uh, I'm of course delighted to be here. I was really thrilled to get the email from Anne-Margaret Anne asking me to take part today so to, to recognise uh, Eilish's contribution to UCD and uh, her career in general. So, um, this is the graveyard shift here. And it's appropriate that this, this story is about a graveyard. It's um, the coast of, a coast of Wales, the coast of Wales, and um, basically it's about a woman visiting a graveyard uh, paying a visit to the grave of her, her dead husband, and she sees a woman in a yellow anorak, and there's a little little dog, a little black dog. That's pretty much it, really. And there's a hearse that comes in, and the dog runs under the hearse, and uh, there's the coast of Wales over there somewhere. So, I'll, I'll just start by reading a little bit of it. As I go back toward the tap, I notice the woman I saw earlier. The woman in the yellow anorak. She's busy at a grave. No doubt she's a widow like me, like most of the graveyard visitors, who spent their lives look, taking care of husbands and have no intention of stopping now, just because they're dead. <laughs> so they keep coming to the graves to pull up the weeds, to water the flowers, to plant new things. The woman in the yellow anorak is touching her headstone with both hands and talking to it. As I pass, I hear what she's saying. Sandra came to dinner yesterday and we, we watched Fair City. I miss you so much, my dearest darling. 
the dog is nowhere to be seen. The tap. That's where the dog is. Tied to the silver post by his leash. He's a Scotty. I can see it now. I remember the difference. Black with that long, sceptical Scottish head. And happy birthday, Robbie Burns. I think it's Robbie Burns' day today. <laughs> Scotty, I just thought I saw Scotty. Hi, little dog, I say. Excuse me while I fill this empty ginger ale bottle with water. I turn on the tap and squeeze the mouth of the bottle so it fits over the lip of the tap. This is not a good idea. Just then a hearse comes through the gate, followed by two black limousines. After them, the straggle of ordinary cars. A few people stand at the corner, paying their respects as the hearse passes and swings quietly around the corner, making for St. Elizabeth's, which we know is a part of, of the graveyard. I used to hate the sight of a hearse. My heart would sink if I met one on the road. But I no longer fear them now. Now that I've met death face to face, tried to shoo it away and lost the battle. Now I can cast an indifferent eye on every horse that passes by because I've driven behind yours. Just as the hearse, the hearse turns around the corner, this thing happens. The plastic bottle dislodges from the tap and a strong gush of water splashes onto the dog. Startled by the sudden cold shower, he breaks free. He can't have been tied very tightly. Off he dashes in the direction of the woman in the yellow anorak. And he runs right under the second big limousine, the one which probably contains the more distant relatives who are nevertheless too important to come in their own cars. I see him. All the funeral followers on the sidelines see him. The only person who does not see him is the driver of the limousine. He is such a tiny dog, the size of a well-fed rat. Dogs aren't allowed in the graveyard. The driver isn't expecting one to run out in front of him. How ghastly. First your husband, then your dog. <laughs> so, I, I, I was in UCD, as Paul said, in the 70s. I don't remember any of those cues that you're talking about. <laughs> Special privileges, clearly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember the nun's toilet either, I'm afraid. I have a photograph. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> About a month into our MA short story module, Ailish sent an email asking us to read Raymond Carver's uh, Are These Actual Miles? And she attached a PDF of the story, but also told us that we'd find it in various publications in case... And I quote, we'd rather read a proper printed version. In our classes, Eilish emphasised diligence and respect for the form. So if Carver had put in the hours and perfected his story for publication, well, then we should probably read a proper printed version of it. We were privileged to have had Eilish as our teacher. I read the coasts of Wales with a similar sense of privilege, a sense of being a chosen confidant. Every reader will feel the same way, that they've been taken aside to listen to a brave voice. Because what impresses most in the story's uh, narrative ventriloquism, the way the writer remains both absent and present. We may recognise the writer's inflection and accent, but the first-person narrator speaks of grief in her own voice 
And thus, through the courage of accurate telling, one woman becomes everyone. But then narrative voices in Eilish's fiction are always convincing. Think of Midwife to the Fairies or Literary Lunch, which was <laughs> your subject for your translation. It's very entertaining. I count that was. The Coast of Wales is no exception. The authenticity of voice has to do with the rhythm of the sentences, sentence fragments, idiomatic phrases, the right tone. Take, for example, this observation about the graveyard. There's only one unique monument in the entire place, a wide slab of pinkish granite, thin as a butterfly's wing, inscribed in tiny Times New Roman. The architect who designed Belfield, of course. <laughs> Those last two sentence fragments are given paragraphs unto themselves, and this lends comic timing to their knowingness. Other asides and observations are given similar typographical treatment. I guess I'll stick with the country life look. They mean well. No, it's okay. The dog is okay. <coughs> Write 300 words and something you lost. That was our first short story, story writing assignment from Eilish. So there's something very cyclical about that and my being here this afternoon to talk about the last story in Selected Stories. Many of Eilish's stories are concerned with loss, or near loss, but perhaps none more so than the coast of Wales. The action happens in a graveyard. Death is literally everywhere. The narrator tells us that her husband is buried under a homespun boulder on Rose Sea in the section called St. Mark's. She draws us near with a confidential you, and as if she were standing at her elbow, advises in a voice laced with irony, quote, to keep a close watch on your plants to make sure they don't decide to consign them to the skip before they're dead. The narrator's dead husband is also addressed as you, and the reader eavesdrops on her conversations with him. The depth of their love and the pain of her loss are evident in the honesty of her longing. It would be great I read from the story. It would be great to have just one more dinner so I could tell you about all that's been happening. Relay all the comments. The sublime, the absurd, the in-between. Inevitably, one is reminded of that Derek Mahan line at the heart of the ridiculous, the sublime. Because both are in evidence here, as so often in life. On the one hand, we have that Scotty dog who resembles a jellyfish after a hearse runs over him. And on the other, this character who has met death face to face, tried to shoo it away and lost the battle. So in this story with its small dog and headstones, Eilish gives a nod of acknowledgement to Chekhov and Joyce. It was during our class discussion of the former's lady with the lapdog and the latter's the dead that we explored this theme that's theme this come up so often this, this afternoon, the importance of liminal zones those boundaries that exist between worlds, fences, seas, stairways, forest edges. And as the critic Jacqueline Fulmer has observed, attentive audience members can spot out of the ordinary moments in fiction where slippage between this world and the other world may exist. In the coast of Wales, a hearse comes through a gate and enters a graveyard 
that antechamber to the underworld. And behind that graveyard lie the Dublin mountains. And in front of it, there's a railway. And beyond that lies a wide expanse of ocean. So many of the key moments in Eilish and Goodness stories occur at such interstices. We think of Sally Rua in the flowering, fascinated by the hair on the fence, a few days later, losing her mind. Or the teenage boy, Ruin. I've decided he must be the favourite character in all your stories. How often has he been mentioned today? In the banana boat, scrambling out of Tralee Bay after nearly drowning and returning to this ordinary, protected life. In the coast of Wales, the narrator stands within shouting distance of the underworld, yet draws comfort from what lies beyond the Irish Sea. And I quote, The haze has burnt off now, and the water sparkles, blue as silk close to land, and a deep, dark indio, like a firm line of ink, on the horizon. You can't see Wales, but it is there all right. John Updike once told a Time magazine reporter that there was no such thing as static happiness. Happiness is a mixed thing, he said, a thing compounded of sacrifices and losses and betrayals. And in this story, there is no resolution of the human dilemma, no neat happy ending. The pointlessness of it all is acknowledged by the kicking of that water bottle into the primroses. But despite that, there is hope in the mix. We hear it in those final sentences. You can't see Wales, but it is there all right. Wales, the land of luck where the woman narrator and her husband conceived their first child. A land that lies beyond illusion. There is also life-giving poetic power in the story's words, in the attentiveness to detail, the use of colour and contrast. How often can we read descriptions as accurate as these? Crimson primroses and tulips, the precise pink of dentures. The rich, eggy yellow of the Dublin mountains. The woman in the yellow anorak touching the headstone with both hands. The brash senetia. The weary chrysanthemum the empty ginger ale bottle. The details are so precise they become completely unique. That tap attached to the slim silver post can only belong in that graveyard. And that deep, dark indigo like a firm line of ink colours a moment that will never come again. And attentive readers will wonder about that Scotty dog. <laughs> As the terrier dug through the earth from the nighttime of the dead to intercede in daylight on behalf of the living to deliver a message of survival. But then again, he's a black dog and he runs away from water. So is he a puka paying a visit to the 21st century? And what about the crimson primroses? Despite their ominous hue, they are first flowers, flowers of new beginnings. And all those other colours on the writer's palette bright and dark, calling to mind both Easter and morning. The yellow gorse, the woman's yellow anorak. Eilish is fond of yellow. <laughs> the withered flowers, the ivy-covered wall, the purple sonetia. These images, rooted in the concrete, yet carrying the potential for ambiguity, lend depth and significance to an ordinary, to an everyday ordinaryness, uh, a woman visiting the grave of her dead husband. In her preface to the Midnight, Midnight to the Fairies, Anne Fogarty quotes Richard Kearney. For him, 
This is writing as quest for symbolic solutions to the contradictions and unanswerable questions of existence. I referred earlier to Eilish's attentiveness to, to typography, her distribution of white space. I was victim of this attentiveness on the MA course. A short story I handed in to her was returned with my ellipses circled in biro, and her note in the margin read as follows. You use a lot of ellipses. In general, avoid. <laughs> now, <laughs> herein lies the danger of asking a student to give a talk on a teacher's story. I went and counted <laughs> all the ellipses in uh, selected stories. <laughs> Guess how many there were? 18. That's only 1.5 per story. So Eilish, given a practice, is what she preaches. She abhors tricks, and after all, ellipses are often showy attempts at kind of a false tension or suspense. So I get that. She never hides from readers anything they need to know. Jack Kerouac, we're worn out. We've all heard him, but his his well-worn advice remains opposite. He said, to write well, you must be in love with your life and accept loss forever. On the evidence of the coast of Wales and her entire creative output, Eilish and Givna is a writer who not only courageously accepts loss and resolutely loves life, but also invites her readers to do the same. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the School of English, Drama, Film and Creative Writing at University College Dublin.